Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. In the past two weeks since the United States, Israel, and the United Arab Emirates announced that there would be a pathway to normalization between the latter two countries, there's been a great deal of debate over the nature of this proclamation and the arrangement between these countries. The normalization between Israel and the United Arab Emirates in the text of the joint declaration between the U.S., UAE, and Israel is predicated on Israel suspending West Bank annexation. But there seems to be some disagreement between Israel and Emirati and American officials, whether annexation is suspended or canceled, whether it's on the table or off the table. And that all seems to be pretty up in the air. Of the groups to whom annexation probably mattered most, other than first and foremost, the Palestinians living in the occupied territories, the organized leadership of the West Bank settlement movement were very much invested in annexation happening. So whether it's a temporary suspension, a permanent cancellation or something in between, annexation is in some way being put on ice in favor of this agreement with the UAE. So it's important to understand their take on this. So to help us break down this issue, we're lucky to be joined by our guest today, Dr. Sariel Hershorn. Sarah is currently the visiting assistant professor in Israel studies at the Crown Family Center for Jewish and Israel studies at Northwestern University. Her expertise focuses on diaspora-Israel relations, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and the Israeli ultranationalist movement. Her first book is City on a Hilltop, American Jews and the Israeli Settler Movement. It was released in 2017, and it was the winner of the 2018 Sammy Rohr Prize in Jewish Literature Choice Award, finalist for the 2017 National Jewish Book Award, and a nominee for the 2021 Grauermeyer Award in Religion. She's currently working on a new book. The manuscript is tentatively entitled New Day in Babylon and Jerusalem, Zionism, Jewish Power, and Identity Politics Since 1967, which puts contemporary debates about the current moment in historical and transnational perspective since the Six-Day War. Before coming to Northwestern, Dr. Hershorn was the University Research Lecturer and Sidney Brickdow Fellow in Israel Studies at the University of Oxford, a postdoctoral fellow in Israel Studies at Brandeis University. She's a graduate of Yale and the University of Chicago and the recipient of numerous grants and fellowships. You can follow her work on Twitter at Sarah Hershorn One. So, Sarah, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So, jumping into this issue, I want to take a step back from the announcement of an agreement between Israel and the UAE that came out two weeks ago and go back to the Trump administration's Israeli-Palestinian uh, peace plan. We could put peace plan in air quotes. This was the political component of the Peace to Prosperity plan that was announced back in January that called for annexation of up to 30% of the West Bank. When that was announced, Prime Minister Netanyahu brought a delegation of settler leaders to Washington, kind of in an attempt to co-opt their community's support for the Trump plan. And yet many of the prominent settlement movement leaders, including uh, David El-Hayani, who's the head of the Yesha Council, the umbrella movement that organizes all of the different settler leaders, opposed it. What do you make of that? I 
think the um, annexation plan, uh, whether or not it will progress in the future, has revealed some very significant rifts within the settler uh, community, both at the level of leadership and amongst its larger constituency. Um, someone like David Al-Hayani, who now heads the Esha Council, is a resident of a very small Moshav in the Jordan Valley Rift. And I think the Esha Council is increasingly representing people like him who live in somewhat small and isolated settlements, some which are in, um, in the region of the Shomron in, in Samaria. Um, and they have different kinds of needs than those who live in uh the Gush Etzion region of the West Bank or Ariel or other um, parts of the West Bank that I think average Israelis recognize as being part of the future of a territorial Israel with or without a future um, peace settlement with the Palestinians. Um, so I think the Isha Council itself is increasingly kind of out of touch with the reality of the larger settler movement. Um, and in reference to the um, possible annexation plan itself, which we didn't really know the details of. We only saw a very, very rudimentary kind of crude map that came out of um, the original um, Trump administration document, and then some speculation about various maps that were waved around in the media and four different plans that Netanyahu apparently had presented to some of his ministers. Um, these were settlements, um, you know, Hayani represents that had real, um, I think, security and um, other concerns had the annexation itself taken place because it looked from these maps that they might have been uh, isolated kind of extra territorial units left within a future Palestinian state. So I think the Yesha Council today um, only represents a really narrow band of interests, and it's not that surprising to me to see that this annexation really opened up um, some of these uh, wider disagreements between those who live in kind of quote-unquote mainstream settlements and those who don't. It's interesting that you bring up this divide between the smaller settlements and the larger settlements, because you can even see that projected out into the way different people reacted to the Trump plan. I mean, one of the settler leaders who took the opposing tack from people like David Al-Hayani was Oded Ravivi, the mayor of Efrat, one of the larger settlements in Gush Etzion. And those are people who kind of swallowed their disagreements and said they'll support their plan and kind of cut your losses and, and let's take what we can get for now. Um, we saw yesterday the Esha Council acknowledging maybe somewhat begrudgingly that formal annexation is not in the offing, but calling for, uh, I believe they framed it as unrestricted settlement construction instead. Um, there's also the Israeli government's plan, which was revived uh, right before the last Knesset election to move ahead with construction in the E1 corridor, which bisects the West Bank. Um, outside of the organized settlement leadership, Again, making this making this distinction between the organized leadership and and some of the other people on the ground. Uh, do you think that most West Bank settlers care about a distinction between formal annexation, um, maybe what the Isha Council wants, or what someone like Oded Ravivi might want, or something that's envisioned in the Trump plan, and this de facto creeping annexation, something like building an E1 or um, building more outposts or uh, 
the even the unrestricted construction that the Asia Council has now called for. So even someone like Oded Ravivi, who, as you mentioned, was uh, for the possible annexation plan put forward by the Trump administration, basically said um, in the media that he didn't really understand why this needed to go forward, that the kind of de facto annexation that was already happening was really sufficient for himself as the mayor of a, I think, what we could call a kind of consensus settlement in the Gush Etzion region of the West Bank, that you know, if it wasn't going to be made a de jure part of territorial Israel tomorrow, we'll probably do so in the future, and certainly probably under a future um, territorial swap with the Palestinians. So I don't think people like him are concerned about the future. And those who live in um, these kinds of quote-unquote consensus areas, the Gush Etzion region, major settlements that abut the Green Line, even Ariel and some of its surrounding suburban communities or uh, other settlements like Ma'ale Adumim, really are not concerned about their future right now. I mean, would it have been nice to have been handed a kind of um, you know uh, gift by the Trump administration to have been fully legally and openly um, annexed to territorial Israel? Probably, but I think most of them felt much more assured by a kind of quiet, ongoing approach um, where they feel that, um, you know, international recognition or even, you know, the U.S. government's recognition tomorrow really um, is not essential for their future and that um, basically they can continue living their lives um, the, the way it has been for, you know, the better part of 50 years. Um, and, um, you know, one day down the road, possibly as part, even as part of a future Israeli-Palestinian peace accord with land swaps, one day they will achieve this kind of uh, de jure recognition. But, you know, the kind of de facto annexation that's going on today where their rights as settlers are certainly not um, in danger and their continuing um, expansion generally um, has been supported by the Israeli government. Um, uh, th- there was really no reason to go forward with such an uh, such an open plan, which they themselves knew would put their whole project at risk and limit future development in the region. Right. And once it's on a map, it's also open to even more public criticism from the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, the one hand, the map or the conceptual map, because as you pointed out, it was kind of fuzzy as to what the Trump administration was actually calling for had all of the Jewish settlements annexed, but that also kind of means imposing boundaries on them. And we keep talking about Oded Ravivi. I mean, he's been very famously opposed to building the Israel West Bank barrier around Efrat, partly because it would limit the outward expansion of that settlement. Looking at this from the Israeli domestic political angle, we've seen in the past couple of weeks uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's perennial right-wing rivals, Naftali Bennett and Ayala Shaked, getting a little bit of a boost in uh, election polls, although it seems that elections are not going to be happening for now. It's something that is still on the horizon, given the nature of Netanyahu's kind of uneasy agreement with Benny Gantz. Um, now, Bennett and Shaked's boost in the polls probably has more to do with COVID than it does with annexation. And Bennett and Shaked are not themselves settlers, but their party central platform uh, and their platforms as politicians really revolves around support for annexation and settlements. 
How do you think the UAE deal has impacted their political trajectory? And how have Naftali Bennett and Ayala Chaked and politicians with similar leanings responded to it? Well, first of all, Naftali Bennett gave a very public statement saying that, you know, essentially Netanyahu had betrayed the settlers in the UAE deal, though I would bracket by saying that I myself am not sure that the UAE deal is really going to go forward, given the issue with the F-35s. This may all be smoke and mirrors, you know, a one-week news story that will collapse behind the scenes later on. But um, certainly Naftali Bennett... Um, you know, sold himself on the credentials of uh, protecting uh, Israeli sovereignty when this deal was announced. Um, and I think in general, given the massive, massive protests against uh, the Netanyahu himself, um, and the sense that Netanyahu in general is not looking out for Israel's main core policy objectives, is rather looking out for himself, Naftali Bennett and the Amina party become increasingly attractive to a right-wing voter. Um, that's also true because Benny Gantz himself, who, you know, um, has the same kind of right-wing credentials as uh, Netanyahu, we should remind our listeners that Kachov Lavan, Blue and White, is essentially the policy platform of the Likud party without the personal corruption of Benjamin Netanyahu. It is not a left-wing party by any stretch of the imagination, but um, Benny Gantz has found himself, you know, kind of rather... Uh, emasculated in his role and outwitted by um, Benjamin Netanyahu in coalition negotiations. So if blue and white maybe had been an option for some kind of moderate right-wing voters, I think increasingly Benny Gantz's weakness has put, um, put that off the table. So many may be looking to Yamina and Naftali Bennett, who actually in his stint as defense minister has looked relatively um, strong and has no real record of personal corruption. Um, I think it becomes a very plausible alternative for many who are just looking for um, a right-wing party that um, seems to have a little bit more substance um, and uh, certainly one that uh, does not have the uh, whiff of personal corruption like the Likud may have today. I'd also say that Naftali Bennett, I think, in general, um, has presented himself well to the Israeli public across the board in the sense that unlike Netanyahu, who increasingly was perceived in this annexation deal as being very secretive and um, you know, trying to conceal any details of, of, of a plan and personally looking out for his own self-interest, Bennett, in general, puts his policy objectives on the table. Now, Israelis can agree or disagree with um, these policy stances, but I think it is... Uh, Bennett and the Amina party are much clearer about where they stand on these issues than Netanyahu or even his Likud party today. And I think for the Israeli voter who may be looking towards a fourth election and really wants to know what they're going to get this time around, um, especially if they're oriented towards a more right-wing plank, um, this is something that, you know, is out there for public discussion. And I think um, an Israeli voter who's sort of is exasperated with the nature of a kind of, you know, secretive and, you know, personal politics of the last several election cycles might find Yamina appealing. I want to come back to two things that you just uh, presented there. First, there's the idea that we can attribute uh, a lot of Bennett's rise in the polls to some Kaholavan voters potentially moving over to Yamina. And then this idea that people know what Bennett stands for, and that includes annexation. So even if Bennett's rise in the polls has to maybe do more with uh, personality differences, like you mentioned, he doesn't have the same uh, 
whiff of corruption around him that Netanyahu does and that maybe some voters object to. Um, and also his, his kind of owning of the coronavirus issue. I mean, when he had his brief stint as acting defense minister, he had called for the defense ministry, uh, probably the, the best equipped government agency in Israel to handle some kind of a national emergency to handle the coronavirus and Netanyahu rebuffed him. Um, even if those are the reasons that Bennett is rising, voters know that he also supports annexation. So what do you make of the fact that Israeli voters who were told time and again, don't support annexation, are willing to support someone like Bennett uh, for other reasons, and they know his positions on annexation, and they just kind of put that to the side. Look, I read all the polls about uh, the split within the Israeli constituency on annexation, but my my feeling is um, that the average Israeli does support annexation, and certainly the average right-wing voting Israeli, who today is the average Israeli, um, you know, the, the average Israeli does vote for the Likud party, the average Israeli does um, support hawkish viewpoints, the average Israeli um, is concerned about the international climate regarding Israel um, and the settlement. So I, I do think that the average Israeli does support annexation to some limited extent. At very least, again, these kinds of consensus, quote unquote, uh, you know, territories within Israel are certainly on the table for the average Israeli. So I don't think that they're very turned off by Naftali Bennett's support um, of this platform. I think they may be concerned by the right-wing flank of the Yamina party, um, those like Betsalel Smotrich, who certainly represent a more religious and, you know, to my mind at least, a much more racist, um, you know, wing of the Yamina party. Not to say that Naftali Bennett has, doesn't have his own attitudes that could fall into some of those categories. But, um, you know, I think, though, that Naftali Bennett presenting himself as this kind of secular, successful entrepreneur with good with good defense credentials, capable leadership abilities and certainly no personal corruption, along with the, um, you know, the kind of hawkish viewpoints of the average Israeli today, I, I don't see why um, an Israeli would not vote for Yamina if they felt that um, the Likud was crippled by the ongoing corruption of um, the Netanyahu administration and blue and white, frankly, hasn't lived up to, um, you know, having the kind of backbone that many blue and white voters um, had hoped for. So why not? Where, where else are you going to go in the next election cycle? It seems to make perfect sense that that's where you are on the Israeli political spectrum. And again, I want to remind our listeners that is where the average Israeli is today. Um, we may, you know, kind of romanticize um, the Israeli left and those who, you know, are very, um, um, you know, dovish on these issues, but that's not the average Israeli today. Sure. And when we're thinking about who would be a successor to Prime Minister Netanyahu, regardless of the circumstances under which he leaves office at the end of the day, maybe despite his own preferences, he's not going to be prime minister until the end of time. But the person who follows him probably is going to come from the right. I mean, you look at the left-wing parties and, and either they're too small or, or too niche, like a party like Meretz, or they're completely politically isolated, like the joint list. I'm glad you brought up uh, Smotrich also, because it's interesting that Bennett is seeing this rise in the polls, despite uh, having Smotrich and his national union faction back as part of Yamina, because when Bennett had his kind of ill-fated run in the first 
of the three successive elections over the past year, uh, he split from that party, uh, probably because he and Shaked wanted to kind of disassociate themselves from someone who calls himself a proud homophobe and says that he wants to bring Israel back to, uh, you know, theocratic monarchical rule of biblical times. And so, um, you know, I, it, it's, it's a good point. I mean, Naftali Bennett has a real problem because, uh, or at least he, uh, he has a real image problem right now in his party because he wants to present himself as kind of a secular, hawkish, um, confident leader. Um, and those like, um, you know, his right wing flank is certainly um, a deterrent to the appeal of the average Israeli. But I just wanted to add that I think that the average Israeli today is really craving um, um, clarity that part of the attraction of Yamina and Naftali Bennett is, frankly, they just say what they think. Um, I, I think that the average Israeli has felt that there's been, you know, three election cycles of a lot of smoke and mirrors, including on the annexation issue. Um, and no real sense, even, you know, going back in the, you know, decade long, over decade long prime ministership of Benjamin Netanyahu, no real clear policy platform on many critical issues um, that, they would rather have a right-wing leader who really tells them what he thinks than a right-wing leader who um, appears to uh, test the wind and um, won't provide a lot of clarity on their policy objectives. So I think that unless the Likud can rehabilitate its image as a party that's really going to speak for the right-wing voter in a clear voice, um, with a leader who will speak with a clear voice about uh, what their policy program is going to be, I think they will continue to hemorrhage votes to Yamina. And it will be interesting to see in the long term what the relationship is also between Yamina and Likud, whether Yamina grows separately at the expense of Likud uh, or whether uh, Naftali Bennett jumps in. Because I think um, until now, at least, the conventional wisdom had always been uh, because Bennett and also uh, you know, of course, we should mention Shaked have their own uh, higher ambitions that their their smaller parties that they would create and run with were just kind of vehicles for them to eventually jump back into or jump into Likud and, um, you know, take the reins of the party most realistically after Netanyahu is off the scene uh, because it doesn't seem like Likud will tolerate any kind of internal dissent um, on that front. Yeah, I think the Likud party is in real trouble right now because they really don't have um, a lot of, uh, uh, there's no sense of a party beyond Netanyahu um, and some of his loyalists at the moment. And even if Netanyahu uh, leaves the scene um, and, you know, there are some of his successors who have name brand recognition in Israel, you know, Gideon Sal or some of his other deputies, I still think it's going to be very hard for Likud to sort of rehabilitate its image um, to the average Israeli as a party that, you know, has um, a real sense of itself and a, a real identity, um, especially because in a future election cycle, it could also face a continuing challenge from blue and white, a party that is extremely internally fractured itself and may not survive into another um, election round. But essentially, if blue and white is Likud without Netanyahu and Likud is then Likud without Netanyahu, what is going to differentiate their brands? Um, Yamina, I suppose, can do so by actually appealing to, you know, the, uh, you know, the more right wing, but Likud and uh, Blue and White don't really have anywhere to go in that election space. So um, Yamina has a slight edge in that sense of being able to differentiate itself um, from the pack. Um, 
if, you know, the average Israeli, I think, is not uh, interested in being in the party of Itzalo Smotrich, they're interested in being in the party of Naftali Bennett or Didon Sar or someone who represents what I guess I would call a sort of mainstream right-wing space today, if not one that we necessarily in the United States see as quote-unquote mainstream right-wing, but in the Israeli political spectrum, I think they're more or less in the same box. Speaking about what people here in the United States think, um, I want to pivot over to another topic that is uh, somewhat related to this, uh, but and certainly on people's minds, which is how all of this, the certainly the Trump administration's policy toward the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is going to fit into um, this little thing happening in two and a half months, the American presidential election. Um, there's been news just in the past couple of weeks that has grabbed a lot of headlines about this issue. Of course, the Israel-UAE deal, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's speech, which was broadcast yesterday at the Republican National Convention, um, and the emergence of Israel as kind of a wedge issue in American politics. So um, starting off with, with just that, your forthcoming book focuses on Zionism and Israel as identity issues in American politics. So how do you think Israel is shaping up as a uh, divisive factor in the presidential election in 2020 and American politics writ large? So I'd say that my new book project takes a more historical approach. I'm looking particularly at the period between 1967 and 1975, you know, roughly the Six-Day War to the Zionism is Racism Convention in the United Nations about how Israel increasingly was injected or, or Zionism was injected into identity politics debates in the United States. And I really see that, you know, um, there is nothing new under the sun here. We are essentially replaying many of the significant um, debates, say, between quote unquote, Jewish power and black power, or between, um, you know, Zionism and um, other forms of radicalism and um, the larger development of the kind of the identity politics space um, that is really just um, coming to fruition today. Um, but, you know, I could read a Stoke, uh, speech from Stokely Carmichael and I can read a speech from Black Lives Matter today. And, you know, there um, there isn't all that much daylight between them. And certainly the reaction of the Jewish community to the tensions between, quote unquote, the, uh, you know, um, the what, what were the millennials of the 1967 generation and the Jewish establishment then or, you know, the millennials of, you know, contemporary moment and today. Um, same same kind of discussion. So. Um, I think the, the point of the book is to really look more in depth about how some of these debates developed and whether any of this conversation has moved in the past 50 years. And I have to admit that I'm a bit skeptical that we've had um, really any development uh, here or a way out of some of these um, um, of these um, conundrums that we're facing um, it, it Israel uh, inserting itself or becoming inserted. Um, and those are two you know separate issues as wedge issues in American politics and more broadly in the American polity today. Um, I'm certainly really concerned about what's happening in the 2020 elections. Um, you know, Israel um, is being used as a kind of um, prop by both campaigns, um, whether it is the RNC filming live from Jerusalem or the um, concerns that, you know, that Israel is really, um, you know, tearing the Democratic Party apart between moderates and, say, the new younger generation of new Congress people and activists um, in that space. Um, I worry that 
a Jewish Zionist uh, in 2024 may find themselves increasingly politically homeless, not comfortable in the Republican Party, but also perhaps uh, not comfortable in the Democratic Party if um, the drift towards um, the left continues there as well. So I think we're at a really critical moment here. Um, unfortunately, my study of history, um, you know, doesn't make me surprised, but uh, I, I worry about what the future will be, um, especially as these issues really accelerate in the next, not only the next several months up until the election, but certainly um, uh, after, after um, the election is over. Yeah, and that will be an interesting uh, metric, you know, the subsequent elections for uh, where American Jews place Israel on their list of priorities on what they vote for. And, you know, consistently we see that uh, U.S. policy towards Israel is not the highest priority for, um, you know, broad swath of American Jewry. And, and we even have in recent days President Trump putting out on the table that from his perspective, his policy towards Israel is aimed at a different audience. He says it's for the evangelicals. And of course, we should say, and you and I were discussing before we started recording this, that this is President Trump's uh, mapping of that policy onto the wider evangelical community. And that doesn't, you know, properly address the, the nuances that probably exist, definitely exist between uh, people in that community and their views on Israel. But, you know, this isn't the audience for the Republican policy on this, at least from the, Repu the, pers the perspective of some Republican policymakers themselves, chief among them, the president of the United States. In that sense, uh, we're in uncharted waters because this is being increasingly directed from the top. Um, you know, historically, um, these were larger debates within civil society, but um, a presidential candidate uh, wouldn't necessarily have taken such vigorous stands um, in one direction or the other, and that's where we are today. Um, so I am very concerned about what will happen not only beyond the campaign moment, but what will happen, you know, whether we have a President Trump or a President Biden with their own bases, you know, over the next four years um, after the elections. I want to uh, take a moment to address the uh, perspective of some of the Republican voters who are seeing the president's policy on Israel now and also seeing things like Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's speech at the RNC last night, which was maybe fairly light on, on actual mentions of Israel, but um, certainly broadcasting from Jerusalem was significant. They made a point of mentioning that and, and driving that point home with having the old city in the background and recording from the top of the King David Hotel. Um, how do you think these voters square this image that President Trump has tried to project for himself that he is, you know, quote unquote, good for Israel, uh, which is not a phrase that I love, but, uh, you know, is certainly the impression that, that certain politicians like to give off. And uh, things like spats between the administration and Israel over issues like annexation, or now you, you mentioned earlier the sale of F-35 fighter jets to the UAE, where at least as we understand now and, and things uh, seem to be a little murky on this. The Trump administration wants to sell uh, this advanced stealth fighter to the UAE and Israel is opposing this sale. So um, where does that land? Um, I think that 
um, you know, the the average Republican voter um, votes for Trump not because of his policy on Israel, and that's true. The average Jewish voter in general, as you said, that the average Jewish voter, American Jewish voter, doesn't really consider Israel amongst you know their top five voting priorities. And I think that's true. The average Republican Jew or non-Jew that um, you know they're attracted to Trump's message because of economic issues or other uh, other priorities. Um, but I do think <clears throat> it will become increasingly harder to sell some of these foreign policy achievements. Um, as time goes on, because it seemed that um, it's become increasingly clear that many of these, um, you know, landmark um, accomplishments have been mostly symbolic and, in, in, and perhaps in the case of the UAE deal um, may not even come to fruition. So I think, uh, you know, the average Republican voter does does see that. Um, I'd also say that for the average Republican Jewish voter, um, Anti-Semitism, um, you know, is also a concern, and particularly, um, you know, demographically, we we think that the average Jewish voter, um, you know, mostly falls within either the Orthodox or the Haredi community in the United States, and they have been, you know, the most visible victims of violent anti-Semitism in the United States during the Trump administration, and I think the normalization of anti-Semitism during the coronavirus has only escalated. So I do wonder, um, you know, whether their lived experience um, on the ground will increasingly begin to conflict with um, some of the reasons that they have um, identified Trump as their candidate. So something that always strikes me about this conversation, and I think a good way to, to tie this all together and to wrap it up, is that if we're saying that Republicans don't vote mainly based on an administration or a candidate's position on Israel. And if Democrats don't vote mainly based on a candidate or uh, an administration's position on Israel, and if, um, you know, American Jews, um, regardless of their partisan affiliation, aren't listing Israel at their top of uh, the top of their list of priorities, how has Israel become this wedge issue? I mean, um, you know, it's, it's crazy seeing things. To me, it, I always find it, um, and, and I feel a little hypocritical saying this because I'm, I'm working for an Israel-focused organization, but at the same time, I don't think Israel is the number one foreign policy issue of our day. So it, it's always interesting for me to see candidates and politicians, uh, you know, zero in on Israel as, as the thing that's going to set them apart from their competitors or their opponents or their potential partners um, in Congress. Well, look, I, I think we live in a world of identity politics. And while all of us are very sensitive to the you know statements being made about Israel, I think similar appeals are being made to many other um, ethnic communities who are trying to, uh, you know, where candidates are trying to sell themselves as their, you know, if you're a candidate for the Cuban community or you're a candidate for the African-American community or your candidate for, you know, you name it. I think, you know, we're paying attention to this discourse because it involves us. But, you know, this is happening um, in many other communities as well. Um, you know, in some states, of course, we live in a world of an electoral college. In some states, the 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 vote, the vote of um, the Jewish community does marginally matter and stances on Israel may affect that that vote. Um, so, you know, it doesn't it's not totally um, uh, uh, irrelevant, but I think it just isn't 
part of the larger conversation. But I think where it matters is not really how it shows up in the uh, the you know the popular vote in the United States, but what it means for American Jewry as a whole. I was just having a conversation with a congregant in my synagogue who was saying that you know in the '60s and '70s. You know, it used to sort of socially matter for you to have a perception of being pro-Israel and to align your candidate preferences along with that, even if, you know, in your own personal rank priority, Israel might not have been number one or even number five. But um, it was much more, I think, significant in terms of um, the communal ties for Israel to be part of that agenda. Today, you know, uh, Israel, American Jewry in some ways is kind of a victim of its own success that assimilation has allowed for American Jews to really um, leave, you know, Jewish concerns, one of which, though not the only one, is Israel behind and really focus on American concerns writ large, whether that will be the question of race in this election or whether that'll be national security or quote unquote freedom whatever it is that American Jews may be responding to, but they're responding primarily to American concerns. Um, and I think that that means something to the Jewish community when Jewish concerns um, are no longer be the priority concern um, and that, you know, really American Jews are perhaps more American than Jewish today. Now, this could be true of many other ethnic communities, um, but I think we're sensitive to this debate because it, it concerns us and what the future of American Judaism will look like and not just who's going to be elected president in November 2020. It will certainly be interesting to see how this all shapes up over the next four years. I mean, so much is up in the air. But with that, thank you for joining us on the podcast today, Sarah, and thank you for sharing your expertise. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure to be with you. For our listeners, just one quick announcement. We have our upcoming IPF Atid Young Professionals uh, Charles Bronfman Convener Cohort that we are recruiting applications for. The applications for that close tomorrow, Thursday, August 27th. Uh, but it's a quick application, so you still have time to go through that. You can find the application online at ipf.li forward slash summit. And until then... Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will catch you on the next episode of Israel Policy Pod.